You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Ben Mesrick. This program originally aired in 2011. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, one of Hollywood's hottest writers, Ben Mesrick from Writers on a New England Stage. The self-proclaimed inventor of a new genre of literary nonfiction, Mesrick's best-selling books include Bringing Down the House and The Accidental Billionaires. The first was the source for the film 21. The second book was adapted into the Academy Award-winning film The Social Network. Mesrick's most recent book, Sex on the Moon, debuted at number 12 on the New York Times bestsellers list. The book picks up his now-familiar theme of an outsider plotting a meteoric rise and then falling back to Earth in spectacular fashion. Mesrick stepped out in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to talk about his own rise and how he distinguished himself as a writer. I want to tell you a little bit about how I got to Sex on the Moon because my career has gone in a lot of random directions. And, you know, I never set out to be a nonfiction writer. I, I always hated nonfiction growing up. I was a big television addict. I was obsessed with watching really bad TV. Uh, I think Saved by the Bell was my favorite show. <laughs> and, uh, and I read People Magazine and Us Weekly. And I wanted to be a writer, though, because my dad had a rule when we were little that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. And so my obsession with television made me a speed reader. So when I graduated from college, I locked myself in a room in Boston, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote nine novels. They were these deep, dark stories that took place in bars in New York City, because I was reading Brett Easton Ellis and Jay McInerney, and I thought, I'm going to be a writer like those guys. And consequently, I was rejected by everyone in New York. Uh, I got 190 rejection slips. I had them taped to all of my walls. I was even rejected by a janitor at a publishing house because I wrote a book and I sent it to an editor who was no longer working there and it went into a garbage can and a janitor took it out of the garbage can and then rejected me. <laughs> you know, I wasn't getting anywhere, but I kept on going and eventually an editor at Random House took pity on me and he called me up and said, I'm not going to publish any of the crap that you're writing, but go read John Grisham and come back in a year. So I read John Grisham, I read Michael Crichton, I read Robert Ludlum, and I thought I could write a thriller. And my dad is a doctor, so I decided I'll write a medical thriller. And I wrote a book, and it was called Threshold, and hopefully none of you have ever read it. It took place, uh, I think it was partly in Boston, partly in New York, and it was about this evil scientist that was implanting genetic diseases in people, and they were dying of genetic diseases. And it got published, and it led to a second book called Reaper, which again, probably none of you ever read, which became a TV movie called Fatal Error, which I hope none of you ever saw, although it still airs on the Sci-Fi channel at about 2 in the morning. And uh, it's about a computer virus that makes the jump to the biological world and people start getting sick from their TV sets. And it stars Antonio Sabato Jr., the underwear model. If you remember him, he was on Melrose Place. He was Heather Locklear's boyfriend. He plays a surgeon, which was very believable casting. I didn't realize that doctors did so many sit-ups, but... I remember there was a scene in the movie, and I was watching it with my dad, and Antonio Sabato Jr. is leaning over a patient's chest, and he goes, we've got a subdural hematoma. And my dad turns to me and goes, you know that's in the head, right? <laughs> so I went on from there, and I got a call from the X-Files television show, and they said, do you want to move to L.A. and write for the X-Files? And I don't really drive. So I said, no, I can't live in L.A. So I wrote a book starring Mulder and Scully called Skin, and uh, it was really bad. It was about a skin transplant gone bad, and this professor gets a skin transplant from a murderer and then starts killing people. 
And uh, Mulder and Scully traced the skin back to Thailand, where I'd never been. So I wrote the whole book from a Fyodor's guidebook. Yeah, Janet Maslin would have loved that if any of you know. But uh, it went on from there, and I was just looking for other pop thriller ideas. And I was hanging out in a bar in Boston called Crossroads. It's like a MIT dive bar. So there's a lot of geeky people there. And uh, there was this group of kids, um, mostly Asian, MIT kids, and they were like everyone else, but they had tons of money. And it was all in $100 bills. And I couldn't figure out why these kids had so much money. And you never see $100 bills in Boston, right? I mean, you see them in Vegas, and you see them in New York, but you don't really see them in Boston. So I went over to the main kid's house, and in his laundry was $250,000 in $100 bills. And uh, I thought, he's got to be a drug dealer. But he was you know, a geeky kid. I didn't think so. And the next day, I went to Vegas with him, and six of his friends flew with us on the plane. And we land in Vegas, and we're taken to this giant suite overlooking the whole city, and we had a swimming pool, and we had a butler. We didn't even know what to do with a butler, but we had a butler. And all the MIT kids start to pull money from under their clothes, and they stack it up in the table, and they say, we're the MIT blackjack team. And they had flown with a million dollars in cash, and it, and it was insane. And this was better than all of the trash I had been writing, but it just happened to be true. So I convinced them to let me play with the team. I spent about six months going back and forth to Vegas, and I wrote my first nonfiction book, which was Bringing Down the House, which became the movie 21. And so, you know, that was going great. That movie was about to come out. And uh, I got an email, a really strange email. And it was from a Harvard senior. And he said, my best friend co-founded Facebook, and no one's ever heard of him. And uh, I thought that was weird. I'd heard of Mark Zuckerberg, but I'd never heard anything else about the story. So I go out for a drink with this guy. And in walks Eduardo Saverin. And Eduardo was really angry. He was a little drunk, but he was really angry. And he began to tell me that Mark Zuckerberg had screwed him out of the company, that he and Mark were these two geeky best friends who had co-founded Facebook when they were, you know, they met in an underground Jewish attorney at Harvard, and they had co-founded it after Mark had pulled this prank after getting dumped by a girl. And he went on and on about this crazy story, and I was like, this is really cool, and I never heard about it before, so I'm going to write this book. And, uh, you know, all of you have probably seen The Social Network, or a lot of you have, but that kind of exploded in, in a very large way. And the way that happened was I was, you know, with Eduardo for about six months, and I wrote a book proposal, and it was a 14-page book proposal. And it leaked out onto the Internet. And on that day, everything kind of went crazy. Zuckerberg and Facebook realized I was writing this book, and they freaked out. Eduardo freaked out because he was in the midst of a lawsuit with Mark, and he had to cut off contact with me. And then Aaron Sorkin read the thing on the internet and decided that would be his next movie. And so that became The Social Network. And this book actually came just as accidentally as those other two. It was uh, around the time The Social Network was you know, finishing up. And out of the blue, I get a call from these guys. And they were mutual friends of a guy named Thad Roberts. And Thad Roberts had just been released from prison, a very long prison term, seven and a half years in prison. And they started to tell me what this kid had done. And I had never heard anything like it in my life. So I got on a plane, and I flew to Utah. And I was meeting a kid who literally had been in prison for seven and a half years. So I was scared. I never met anybody who had spent that much time in prison. Um, so I met him in a crowded hotel lobby. And he was the nicest guy, very charismatic, very brilliant, but had done something utterly stupid for love. Uh, what he had done, uh, he had been at NASA, he had been a co-op, which is a college kid, on his way to the astronaut training program, and he fell in love with his intern there, so to impress her, he broke into the lab and stole a 600-pound safe full of moon rocks 
from every moon landing in history. So there was a piece from every Apollo mission. And moon rocks are the most valuable thing on Earth. A single gram of moon rock was once offered for $5 million. Um, so this is what, you know, an incredible theft in a lot of ways. He took the rocks out of NASA, he spread them on a bed and had sex with his girlfriend on the moon because he wanted to be the only person who'd ever done that. And then he tried to sell them over the internet. <laughs> so literally, he and a stoner buddy, he meets this stoner friend of his, this guy named Gordon. When he first meets Gordon, you know, he says, uh, you smoke pot, you must know criminals. Um, and that's literally how it goes down. And if I had a moon rock, do you think you could sell it? And Gordon's response was, you know we never actually went to the moon, right? So Thad, you know, he doesn't even realize his friend works at NASA. Thad's like, okay, even so, if I give you a moon rock, do you think you could sell it? Gordon goes on the internet, starts sending out emails that say, anybody want to buy a moon rock? And a Belgium mineral collector named Axel Emmerman, a guy who's never been out of Antwerp in his life, says, yeah, I'm interested. That guy decides that he's going to do the right thing. He calls the FBI, and unbeknownst to Thad, he starts negotiating with, he thinks it's a Belgium guy, but it's actually the FBI. He's taken down a huge sting operation. And I figured I'd end just by reading a little bit, you know, from the intro so you can get a feel for how this book goes right from the beginning. This is from Sex on the Moon. I love just saying that title, Sex on the Moon. <laughs> My wife is actually here, and it was her fault. That title comes from her. I thought it was going to be like the moon rock heist or the lunar caper, and then she said, why not just call it Sex on the Moon? So <laughs> it's her dirty mind behind that. It had to be the strangest getaway in history. Thad Roberts tried to control his nerves as he stared up through the windshield of the idling four-wheel drive Jeep. The rain was coming down in violent gray sheets, so fierce and thick he could barely make out the bright red traffic light hanging just a few feet in front of him. He had been sitting there for what seemed like forever, a long stretch of pavement serpentined into the gray mist behind him, winding back past a half dozen other traffic lights, all of which he'd had to wait through in exactly the same fashion. Even worse, between the lights he'd had to keep the Jeep at an agonizing five miles per hour, a veritable crawl along the desolate rain-swept streets of the tightly controlled compound. It was unbelievably hard to drive at five miles per hour, especially when your neurons were going off like fireworks and your heart felt like it was going to blow right through your rib cage. But five miles per hour was the mandatory speed limit of the compound, posted every few yards on signs by the road. And at five miles per hour, once you hit one red light, you were going to hit them all. Best-selling author Ben Mesrick reading there from the prologue of his new novel, Sex on the Moon, at the Portsmouth Music Hall for the Writers on a New England Stage series. When we return, I'll talk with Mesrick about writing cinema-ready books, distinguishing fiction from nonfiction, and get his take on why his use of narrative nonfiction is so controversial. I'm Virginia Prescott, a conversation with Ben Mesrick on this special Writers on a New England Stage edition of Word of Mouth. That's after this short break. This is NHPR. Just for one day We can be heroes Just for one day This story was completely covered up by NASA. Um, Is that right? They really didn't want anyone to know about it. They were embarrassed by what happened, especially because it was one of their own. I mean, this kid, Thad Roberts, uh, had worked so hard to get into the astronaut situation. He was a kid from a really bad background. He grew up in Utah at a very tough Mormon fundamentalist household, 
was kicked out of his home at a young age for having premarital sex. And, and admitting it. Admitting it on his Mormon mission. He thought they would give him a slap on the wrist, and they actually told his parents. His parents banished him to the basement and then kicked him out of the house. So he had re recreated himself as this James Bond kind of guy. He had uh, majored in three majors, geology, astronomy, and physics. He had uh, taught himself how to fly airplanes and scuba dive and mountain climb. And so he had gotten into this incredibly hard-to-get-into program and then had done something so stupid and kind of betrayed everyone there. So NASA really, really hated him and didn't want anyone to sort of glorify him or talk about it. So when he first called me and I looked into it, I realized there had only been one article ever written about it. And other than that, it had been completely covered up. Mm -hmm. Is get, that part yeah. of the draw for you? I um, mean you know, part of it, obviously, I don't want to write a story that a lot of other journalists you know, have already thrown their hat into it. And uh, you know, in a lot of ways, bringing down the house it was kind of the perfect story for me because this group of MIT kids were doing this undercover thing for 20 years. It had been handed down from group of students to group of students, and yet no one had ever written about it. Um, and this was very similar. This kid had stolen a 600-pound safe of moon rocks, and no one had ever written about it. So <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Well, he is like characters that you've written about in other books. Very smart, very talented, maybe not the best judgment, or let's just say unscrupulous. Yes, uh, unscrupulous. To some degree. Although, you know, usually I write about these geeky guys who, who sit in that moral area between yeah. right and wrong, and this geeky guy went right past that moral gray area and committed a major crime. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit, you know, over that line. It is over that line, but he, there's also a commonality, and he's trying to kind of outpace this outsider status that he has. Right. And, and, and that we've seen in other books. What's the draw there for you? Well, I think, I mean, I grew up a very geeky, nerdy guy. I love the stories where it, it's like geek to rock star. It's like this transformation... From, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, someone who, who couldn't get the girl. Usually I write about guys who can't get laid. This is the first guy I wrote about who actually could get laid, and that ended up being the source of his problem. But I, I like to write about these people who go from this kind of, you know, outsider status, the whole Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, who are brilliant, but they need to show the world what they can do uh, to become something else. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I live vicariously through these stories. I want to be a part of the story. Um, and this was kind of perfect for that. And you do get into these stories in a great way. I was reading about some of the things that you do to kind of prepare. Uh, you visited the Johnson Space Center, obviously, met a lot of the players. In other books, you've, you've eaten koala meat, I uh, Well, think. Zuckerberg ate koala meat, actually, although he denies it. Well, he denies everything I write about him. But for this one, getting into NASA was actually an interesting story because NASA did not want me to write this book. When they found out I was writing it, they told everyone they are not to speak to me. So I just went on their website, and I signed up for what's called a Level 9 tour, which is this internal tour of NASA where they take 12 people a day, and you spend a whole day in mission control and in that giant swimming pool where uh -huh. they sink a space shuttle underwater, and the astronauts go down in spacesuits. And I figured they're going to cross-check my name, and I'm going to get kicked out. And I show up, and they give me a security badge, and the next thing I know, I'm in NASA, and I'm walking around Mission Control, and Thad Roberts, the guy who robbed NASA, is texting me and be like, okay, there's a door in the back of the room, go through that door. <laughs> and I used to sit right there in the cafeteria. So I'm like getting the ultimate guided tour of NASA by the kid who robbed NASA. So the security is probably not all that much better now than it was. <laughs> 
back when he did his crime. You also strapped $250,000 of cash to your body did, yes. to go through airport TSA security. I mean, are you kind of a method writer? I'm a method writer. Uh, I'm, I like to go inside. When I joined the MIT Blackjack team, I was the money boy, like in the movie 21. I all Oh, donkey, donkey boy. I would strap all the money to me, and I would go with the team, and uh, we'd get to Vegas. But you have to remember, this is before 9-11, so you actually could carry a coat. You could wear a coat. Right. So it was much easier to stuff about a quarter million dollars on you. And in the meantime, you know, writing about these things, you've kind of created your own brand of nonfiction. And I mean, you... that's the goal, yeah. I, I think uh, I set out to write true stories as thrillers. Um, so... I really set out to write them like movies. Um, and I get attacked a lot for that, but it's always been the way I've wanted to write these books. Are you always kind of envisioning how this is going to look on film? Yeah, I am. It's, I'm a very visual visual writer, and uh, I sit down and I think of it as a film as I write it. And it's a true story, but it happens to be a true story. That's To me, I've stumbled into these stories. I'm still writing them like they're thrillers. They just happen to be true. Um, so yeah, I try and visualize it. And sometimes, you know, it's very easy, like the Winklevi. Hollywood could manufacture something like that. Six foot five, identical twin Olympic rowers. And you walk in, and I remember meeting them for the first time. My wife was actually with me, and we walk into the hotel room, and there are these two giant robots. And uh, I, I don't remember whether it was Tyler or Cameron, and you can't really tell the difference. He's like, uh, you look at us, and you think, we must be the bad guys, because if this were an 80s movie, we'd be dressed up in skeleton costumes chasing the karate kid around the gym. And uh, I put that in the book, and then Aaron Sorkin put that in the film. But, you know, sometimes you just get a character like that. And Axel Emmerman in this one is like that, too, because he's this Belgium gem dealer. You know, he collects rocks, but his wife's name is Crystal, which is perfect. <laughs> so he's the perfect kind of movie character, and he's the one who broke the story. And, so and do you think about casting them? I don't really have any control over that. As the author, you kind of seed all control and on a movie set you're like right below the caterer in terms of importance <laughs> um but i would love to see kevin play him uh but we'll see yeah so we're watching Thad. He's kind of fantasizing about as you were talking about crossing that line you know from the mental game to actually the heist rationalize what i would consider one of the most hormone driven boneheaded shows of love ever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> committed is there a way of imagining yourself crossing the line? I mean, how do you get there inside yeah, of the character? I mean, well, Thad is a very complex character. He's the most complex person I've ever written about because his motivation is really hard to figure out. You know, he's got everything he wants. He's on his way to becoming an astronaut. He's got the girl, but it's not enough. He needs to be loved. He needs to be famous. He needs everyone to look at him. He needs to be James Bond. You know, while he committed the crime, he had the James Bond theme song playing in his head. Like, that's the kind of guy he is. And for me, I guess it is kind of this vicarious thrill. I mean, I don't want to steal a safe full of moon rocks, but I like to put myself in his shoes and think, what would that be like? So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think there is that. There's that, that need to sort of be a part of the story. And uh, it's interesting, these characters trying to figure out why they did what they did. Well, yet we think as readers, you know, we're reading about this, we know emails are traceable. And we're right. thinking... Oh, how could you possibly risk right. it all and throw it all away? But you don't judge them. I mean, no. is that something like when you're having these conversations with, with characters that maybe have done deplorable things, do you have to kind of pull away from judgment? Yeah, I try to sit, you know, back and be the fly on the wall and be very objective and not. But there was a lot of times with that I was saying to him, what were you thinking? I mean, how do you, 
do something so brilliant. The crime itself was very brilliant. He had to put fluorescing powder on these keypads to figure out what keys were pressed, and he 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 gets a uh, a Jeep with a NASA stickers on it, and then changes the plates in a parking lot, and sets it up so the cameras won't see them, and goes on a rainy night so they won't be seen, and then he goes on the internet and says, "Does anybody want to buy moon rocks?" So it's like yeah, it's like he's a Nigerian prince trying to get money to save you know the bank or whatever. It's foolish. And I asked him so many times, and he's like, "Well, I'm I'm not a master criminal." You know, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about it would be really cool to have sex on the moon. So it's interesting to me. This character did something so stupid and yet could be so smart. Ground control to major tones. I'm Virginia Prescott with a special Writers on a New England Stage edition of Word of Mouth. Today, author Ben Mesrick. His particular brand of literary nonfiction makes thrillers out of true stories. His account of the founding of Facebook was the basis of the 2010 film hit, The Social Network, and his latest work, Sex on the Moon, has already been optioned for adaptation. It's the story of Thad Roberts, who was rejected and kicked out of his strict Mormon family as a teenager. Thad then sabotages his dream to become an astronaut by plotting and then pulling off the heist of a collection of moon rocks from a NASA safe to impress a woman he'd fallen in love with in just a matter of weeks. The story is a screenwriter's dream, but Mesrick insists that he has stacks of transcripts, court testimonies, and documentation to ground the sensational story in fact. In the author's note to Sex on the Moon, Mesrick acknowledges recreating and compressing conversations and events while creating a dramatic narrative account. I asked him how he decides which names, characters, and events to dramatize during the writing process. Well, I, mean, I feel like everything in the book is true. Um, there are certain characters whose names and descriptions are changed, but what happens in those scenes did happen. Usually the changes I make are because the people either ask me to hide who they are or I have to hide who they are for other reasons. Um, in this book, the two girls were people who did not want their names and descriptions out there, so they're changed. But otherwise, everything in here is the real names and everything here is the real happening. Um, in terms of dialogue, I interview the people that I can who were there. I get the court transcripts. In this case, I had all the FBI files, so when the FBI takes him down, the FBI agents are wearing wires, and I got the transcripts for all the wires. So all of that is word for word. But in other places, you know, I know what was said, but I don't have the exact words. Um, so what I do is, rather than just say they talked about moon rocks, I create a conversation between the two of them talking about moon rocks. I know what they were talking about. I just add words to it. Some people don't like that. Some nonfiction uh, journalists feel that that's crossing the line. But I feel that's very you know, much allowed in this form of nonfiction as long as you say it right up front, which I do. I say this is what I'm going to do. You know, I make those decisions based on what information I have, what the people who did it told me, and, uh, you know, and then I write it like that. Well, you write in the introduction that you tried to creep the chronology and details of this narrative as close to exact as possible. I mean, is that a kind of preemptive statement? I know you have well, been I, you know, listen, criticized a lot Well, you know, I'm a very controversial author, and uh, a lot of uh, parochial uh, journalists come after me, um, and they say, oh, you can't do this, this is new journalism, or whatever they want to call it. Uh, but the reality is, is that this is an extremely documented book, as was the Facebook book. As much as Mark Zuckerberg hates it, and decided that it was not true, although he also said he didn't read it, so I don't really know what that means. He I hear me. he was spotted at a movie Yeah, he movie saw the movie, and, and in the end, they actually liked the movie. Uh, in the end, because it ended up making Mark look much cooler, I think, than he is in reality. Um, but uh, in the end, they actually did enjoy the movie, but, you know, they called me the Jackie Collins of Silicon Valley, <laughs> which I am very proud of. Um, uh, you know, it's a difference of opinion. That was not the story Mark wanted to tell. 
it was Eduardo and the Winklevi and other people who really wanted to talk. Mark, I spent a year trying to get him to talk to me, and he kept saying no, he kept saying no, because he knew I was talking to Eduardo. And so in the end, that story is true. It's just not from his point of view. I mean, the scene where they're hooking up with two girls in the bathroom stalls. I have that information from Eduardo. I have that information from someone who was there. I have that information from other people who were friends who they were told right afterwards. I know that it happened. And so describing that scene to me is perfectly legitimate nonfiction journalism. When Mark comes across and says, oh, I never hooked up with anybody, why do you believe that more than you believe everyone else who was there? And so for me, when my books get attacked, it's simply my style that's getting attacked, not the facts. No one has pointed out anything that's not factual in any of my books. Um, they've pointed out the stylistic choices I make. They've pointed out scenes that are very dramatic and movie-like, but never point out any facts that are incorrect. And the truth is, my biggest edit is my legal edit. I have to sit down with a team of lawyers who go through every single page in this book deciding whether or not it's true. Because if it's not true, you can't put it in the book. So it's kind of funny to me whenever, and, and really what's going on is the journalists are attacking my author's note. I, I read uh, review after review, and half the review is my author's note. And it kind of cracks me up. And I think what's going on, it's this whole James Fry thing, is every journalist is trying to score this scandal, right? But because I put it right in the beginning of the book, there's no scandal. So it upsets them. I think it makes them very angry. And so they want to attack the book, but there's nothing to attack other than the author's note. Well, you seem to be a particular target, though. Do you think, I mean, is it because you've been so successful? Well, I mean, that might be part of it. Part of it might be because I seem to enjoy it too much. <laughs> I think that I go out there and I enjoy the controversy. I'm happy with it. I'm happy to talk about nonfiction. And they want me to shirk away like James Fry on Oprah. Um, they want me to run off in the corner. And I feel like this is a very legitimate form of writing a nonfiction book. And, you know, there's a lot of people doing this. It's not just me. I, I mean, there's plenty of nonfiction writers who, who, who take the scenes and write them like they're a thriller. And most of the books that you like to read do this. And I get attacked, I think, more than other people because I, I'm out there more. Um, because The Social Network was a huge movie mm. and you had Facebook, a billion-dollar company, saying it's not true. But they didn't say what wasn't true. They just said it's not true. So you know what? I don't have any problem with that. I think that it's, it's a great discussion, especially a lot of people want to be writers and they want to go into nonfiction. And there are different pathways. You can write documentaries. Um, you can write uh, very thick thousand-page books about Abraham Lincoln. Or you can write thrillers like this that are still true. And I, don't think, I think there's room for all of us. Here are some questions about your writing. When you are writing, what kind of music do you listen to the most? I mean, you know what? With this book, I was listening to a lot of moon and space-based music. <laughs> um, so David Bowie, right? You know, um, a lot of David Bowie, uh, Space Oddity and Starman and the whole Ziggy Stardust thing. I listen to a lot of Eminem. <laughs> I don't know why, but I do. Um, and then I go back to the doors and, and sort of a rock background. But I do listen to a lot of music. Um, and I actually have the music turned up really loud when I'm writing. You do. And my room is dark and the window shades are drawn. And I turn, that's why I'm so pale, if you've <laughs> noticed. Um, I kind of reflect the light. It's a very dark, kind of closed in kind of process for me. I know that Thad Roberts contacted you about this. Do you right. get a lot of pictures from people? I do. I get 20 to 30 a week. Really? It's all tweets now. Yeah. Everybody's tweeting to me now, but emails, phone calls. I have a listed number with a, a phone not attached to it uh -huh. that I check the messages and everything comes via just random people. Anytime a college kid pulls off a heist now, I get a phone call. <laughs> um, but I also get bigger calls. I got 
the WikiLeaks people uh, wanted me to tell that story, but I, you know, everyone's telling that story, so I didn't want to do it. Um, the madam in the Elliot Spitzer case was one of the people who came to me. The girl who Brett Favre texted his penis to uh, <laughs> came to me. I mean, how could you write a whole book? Of, was it the, the penis book? I don't know what I would call it. And then pretty well, much... Well, sex on... Maybe your yeah, wife could come up with penis, something. All right. Right. <laughs> I'm sure she could. I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a crazy thing where I've just become the go-to guy. What are the kind of elements that you're looking for when searching for the next big true life story to write about? Mm. Is that someone who has a story? Is that what's going on? You know, it has to have the elements I like. So there's got to be a young people pulling off a scheme. It doesn't have to be a guy. I would love to get approached by a girl with a great story, but I just haven't yet. Um, it's got to have all the elements of kind of like sex and money and betrayal. Um, there's got to be some genius to it. It can't just be, you know, I knocked over a liquor store. <laughs> it's got to be, you know, Ocean's Eleven-y. Um, and then it has to be a place that I want to go. Uh, I get calls all the time from, like, Afghanistan, or, and I can't do that. That's, Sebastian Younger can do that, and he's awesome, and, and I'm amazed by him. He's, he's awesome. He's, like, in the foxhole. Um, he was telling me a story about how he was in Serbia, and he was asleep, and you would see the the red tracer, tracer of, mm -hmm. of a sniper going around the room, and you would just stay under it. And I was like, oh man, I can't do that. I would go to Vegas and, you know, and be afraid of someone breaking in and throwing me out, but I'm not gonna go uh, to Afghanistan. So I, it has to be a place I wanna go, and, uh, and just someone I wanna sort of hang out with for a year. Why young people? Um, because I think I wanna live vicariously. I wanna be a part of it. Um, it's gotta have that energy. Um, and that's the people who approach me. Those are my audience. Well, um, if Rebecca Brooks, you know, the one who just got the editor of oh, News yeah, of the that World, out that if she came thing. to you and said... Well, if she came to me, I would do it. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the thing. If, you know, if I got a call from, you know, Charlie Sheen... No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that story. But if I had the main character and they really wanted to talk, um, I probably would do it. Although Julian Assange did want to talk. Um, and I turned it down because it was too... You thought he might was, well, get 50, fresh. <laughs> well, yeah, I might disappear. No, there were like 50 <laughs> books being written about it. Um, and that's just not where I want to throw my hat. But I do need to have that inside source. It's, it's no fun for me to write a story just... And, and the Zuckerberg thing was very tricky for me, not having Mark. Although having Mark would have probably had its own problems because he's very controlling and notoriously would keep me from writing everything else that was in the story. But it was tricky writing around him and having to tell the story without actually being able to talk to him. So it would, you know, it always is much better if you can get the main person to talk to you. What do you think the book that he would want to see well, he, about he did, You know, he talked to this guy, Kirkpatrick, who wrote a book, yeah. and it was a Mark Zuckerberg story. I mean, it was the story written from Mark's point of view. It didn't include Eduardo. There was no interview with the Winklevoss twins. There was no mention of all these other things that happened. I feel very strongly that my book and the social network is the true origination story of Facebook. Um, it's not the story that has Mark, you know, typing code for 10 pages, right? But it is the story where there were these two geeky kids who were trying to meet girls, who were, you know, trying to get into finals clubs and Mark late one night after getting dumped by a girl, hacks into the computers at Harvard, pulls up pictures of every girl on campus and makes a website where you can vote on who the hottest girl at school was, um, doesn't realize why everyone gets mad at that um, because he's so strange, and then comes up with this idea and says, you know what, if girls could put their own pictures up, we'd have something, and he launches Facebook. That's the true story. That's what happened. And uh, that's not the story Mark would necessarily tell, but that's the story that everyone who was there tells. I read an interview where you said Mark Zuckerberg should love this book. He should love this book. And, you know, he should send me a gift basket. <laughs> right? <laughs> Cover of Time magazine, uh, $100 billion valuation. 
Eduardo got 5% of Facebook from talking to me. Um, they, they signed a non-disclosure with him to get him to stop talking to me and gave him 5%. He should really send me a gift basket, <laughs> right? But, uh, you know, Mark, I think in the end, Facebook is happy with it because it really made Facebook cool. Um, it's not MySpace. It's not Friendster. It's not, you know, who knows what's going to happen with Google+. But Facebook was the cool story to tell, and I think it, it did them a lot of favors. You said you kept in touch with Jeff Ma, obviously, but how about Thad? Have you? Uh, Thad and I still are in touch right now. Thad's an interesting guy, and I really hope the best for him. But I also recognize that he is a little crazy um, and very, you know, he knew the girl for three weeks. It's not like this was this, you know, year-long relationship. He fell that love and wrote a letter every day for three years afterwards after knowing her for three weeks. So... That's a little much, right? He's a great guy, and he's a genius. And in prison, he, he starts teaching astronomy. He comes up with an idea of physics that he's attempting to publish. He can do a lot of great things with his life. He's getting his PhD again. He still wants to go to space. That's still his dream. Of course, not going to happen at NASA, um, but maybe private. That's his goal. I just think he needs to get some level of control. He needs to calm down a bit and, and hopefully move forward. But I still am in touch with him. It's tricky when you write about someone. You don't always stay friends with them. You know, Eduardo had to cut off all contact with me. And so I got a restraining order from him saying I can never speak to him. And, you know, for 5% of Facebook, I'd cut off all contact with me too. Uh, it's understandable, but it's sad because Eduardo and I were good friends. We did spend six months together. Uh, I'm still friends with the Winklevi. I love those guys. And uh, Sean Parker was a great source for me, and I spent a lot of time with Sean. And he, he's looking more and more like Justin Timberlake. Uh, so I, I think he's taking it to heart. He's really trying to uh, look the part. Uh, I ran into him uh, at an Oscar party, and it was like he came in like he was in the movie. I mean, bebopping, talking to everybody in the place, and like buying drinks, and, and you know, all our money down. Out, but he's got an inhaler in his pocket, right? So, you know, it's a funny juxtaposition. But um, I try and stay friends with these people. Um, I'm definitely friends with the MIT kids. Those guys are all buddies of mine. Except for the girl who, who Kate Bosworth played in the movie. Um, she wasn't that thrilled with it uh, because she's a very serious, she's a lawyer now um, at a very serious company and she was nervous about what that would do. Um, I do remember when the, the movie was about to get made, she sent a letter to Sony saying she wanted to make sure her character did not smoke, and did not have sex with more than six people. <laughs> it was just like, I don't know what she thought, what kind of movie she thought was going to happen, right? But, uh, but she's a very sweet woman, and she's actually the one who introduced me to the team. She was a, a classmate of mine, and I had no idea she was also a blackjack player, and she was dating one of them, and at that bar, she introduced me to all those guys, and that's where it all started. So I owe her a lot, but it was pretty funny that <laughs> she reacted that way. That's the other thing when you write a story. You don't know how it's going to change their life, and I try and warn them. Um, like with Thad, he's going to become infamous. A lot of people are going to hate him, and a lot of people are going to love him. He came to Boston. I had a book party, and, and everyone loved him. I mean, there's that bad boy appeal. He's very good-looking, um, very rugged, and he was in prison, and I think some people like that. Um, and and uh, at the same time, I get nervous because it's like you're going to get a lot of attention for a while, and then the attention kind of disappears, and it's up to you how you deal with that um, because it's, it's crazy. You know, you get millions and millions of interviews and then all of a sudden nobody's talking to you. And so what's the next act? And that's always what I worry. And the MIT kids did great. You know, Jeff, you know, created an internet company and sold it um, and then wrote his own book. And that was phenomenal. And uh, the Facebook guys, listen, they're all billionaires. They're all doing awesome. Um, but that, it's really hard to know what's next. I mean, he has a huge prison record, but he's very smart. So I hope he continues in school 
gets his PhD and someone is, is, is willing to hire him. Well, it's such a kind of poignant day for us to be talking and thinking about NASA. The shuttle Atlantis right. docked for the last time today. Tomorrow, 1,500 people are going to be losing their jobs at NASA. I mean, it's sad. And you know what? I'm the hugest fan of NASA. I wrote this book because I love NASA. Um, but when you picture NASA, you picture the 60s, right? You picture Tom Hanks in a little silver capsule floating around the moon. Uh, NASA today is a very different place. It's very vibrant. It was very alive. When I went there, there were these Mars robots everywhere and all these ideas about how to get to Mars. And I really hope we fund it. I hope we pour tons of money into it. Because, listen, we pour tons of money into war. Why can't we pour tons of money into getting to Mars? Even if there's no point to it, it's still cool. And it's still, uh, it gets people into science. It gets people excited about the future. And, uh, and who knows what's next? So I feel like I would love to see NASA continue in a big way. I wonder if we're going to start seeing Thad Roberts on CNN as a commentator about <laughs> all of the trade in illegal NASA-related memorabilia. I mean, I, you know, it would be really interesting. There's a story like every day now about someone stealing a moon rock or trying to sell a moon rock or, uh, you know, something like that. So I would love to see Thad out there doing that. But um, I don't know. <laughs> it would be interesting to see. Well, it's interesting because, you know, NASA didn't want this story out, but this story would not have been possible anywhere else. I mean, right. Thad thought because he was in this vaunted place, he'd finally made it in this place that everything was possible. No wonder he would thought he could do it. Right. I mean, it is a place where it's like the coolest toys in the world, the smartest people put there, and they all are doing this for no reason other than because they love it. I mean, they get there and they love space and they want to be a part of the space program. And, uh, and he was one of their own and it's kind of, you know, he looked at these moon rocks. He thought, we're not using these moon rocks. Um, they'd already been experimented on. He considered them NASA's trash. Um, NASA was no longer, they were basically in a corner of NASA, so he thought, I'm going to take them. Uh, now, I don't know if that's someone you want to invite to your house, <laughs> because you might have something you're not using, right? <laughs> He'll say, oh, you're not using this. Um, and, uh, and earlier in his life, he had been working at the Museum of Utah, uh, at, at the University of Utah, and he had pocketed some fossils under the same. So, you know, there's some issues. But um, That was kind of the gateway drug for him. The gateway. Well, some. he thought, they're not using these fossils. They're in the back corner of the museum. I'll display them at my house. And so he would have these dinner parties, and people would come over, and there'd be a 20-million-year-old <laughs> rock um, that he borrowed from the museum. Um, and he did the same thing with NASA. So, uh, you know, you think about it, and you know there's obviously a little disconnect going on. Um, but uh, it's still fascinating. Yeah, but he did say to himself, like, well, if I got $100,000 for this rock, I could become a better scientist. And if I could become a better scientist, I could help NASA get to Mars. And then I'd be doing something really heroic and noble. And that is the way he thought. That was his thought process. And uh, like I said in the book, it's a little delusional. But uh, it's little. also interesting to note that he was only going to ask for $100,000. And $100,000 for what he had stolen is nothing. I mean, a one gram once went for $5 million, and he had 100 grams in this 600-pound safe. So he could have asked for a whole lot more. All he wanted was $100,000 because that's what he needed to get started and to take his girlfriend to Africa, I think, was what he wanted to do. So, yes, he was a dreamer, <laughs> I guess. Well, it reminds me of... You know, this guy who never thought that he could get a toehold. You know, right. if he did X, then he would be the person he thought he was going to be. And for some reason, I'm reminded of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, at least the line in the book, where the Winklevoss twins, or the Winklevoss, as you call them, were so upset about their initial deposition. And he says, 
they're just mad because everything has always worked out for them. And I mean, right. are you an underdog guy, Ben <laughs> Mesrick? I am that an underdog you're? guy. I love the underdog because I was always the underdog. I was scared of everyone over six feet tall. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I lived through a lot of rejection, both in my writing career and before that with women. So I think I understand the underdog situation. Uh, and, and the social network and Axel Billionaires was a very cool juxtaposition of a guy you would expect to be the underdog, Mark Zuckerberg, and the guys who you expect to be the, the cool kids on campus, you know, the Winklevi, and yet it kind of turns on its head, and Mark becomes the guy taking advantage of, of everyone around him, sort of. Um, but he is the genius behind Facebook, because he's the only one who can make Facebook. You know, that's that great line uh, that Aaron Sorkin wrote, I did not, that, you know, if you'd created Facebook, you would have created Facebook. And that's completely true. And so, yeah, I'm into the underdog who's actually can do something great and really does deserve to be on top. So here you are meeting with Aaron Sorkin. You talked yeah. about being at an Oscar party earlier. Okay. You hang out with Kevin Spacey. Right. Are you the geek that became a rock star? Well, then? I'm definitely not a rock star. I was uh, at an Oscar party where there were real rock stars, and I was kind of terrified and hiding in the corner. Um, I, I, it, it's been a weird thing for me that I've kind of fallen into all these movies. Um, it all happened with Kevin Spacey. I had written an article for Wired magazine about the MIT kids, and he read it, and I just, the phone rings, and I pick up the phone, and it's a guy, it's like, I have Kevin Spacey on the line. And uh, I didn't believe him. I ended up hanging up on them, and I called my mom. I was like, I think Kevin Spacey is trying to call me. And she said, no, it's MIT kids prank calling you, because they always prank call me. Um, but uh, I Googled his assistant's name, and it really was his assistant. So I call back, and it's really Kevin, and he's like, I want to make a movie, and I want to star in it. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. And... Uh, then he sends it out to all of the studios, and everyone turned down 21 except for MGM, which was the casino that we had been hitting over the past year. Um, so we thought they were going to crush the movie and not actually make it, but they were like, no, we love this because it makes everyone come to Vegas and think they're going to win. Um, so I feel bad a little bit about that. But uh, then the social network, the way that movie happened, as, as I said, you know, the, my, my book proposal leaks on the web. Aaron Sorkin says he wants to write it. Uh, Kevin Spacey and Dana, his partner, have already taken it out to Hollywood. Scott Rudin joins in, and suddenly it's this mega movie. And David Fincher calls and says, I want to make it, but only if we make it today, because Facebook may not be here a year from now, which was really smart, because the movie then ended up coming out right in the midst of Facebook's kind of biggest moment. Um, and Mark Zuckerberg helped us a little bit by giving $100 million to the school system in Newark, um, giving a lot of more publicity to everything. Um, and it was just a wild, wild thing. So, and then this one, I sold to the same producers uh, of the social network, so it was a kind of cool situation, yeah. There's a point in the book where Thad is kind of imagining himself, you know, as a rising star at NASA, and Everett Gibson, his mentor, right. the one he, he ultimately steals the rocks from, says, you know, it's more important to be part of a brilliant constellation than to go it alone. And I wonder for you, you know, here you are, this writer sitting in your dark room all by yourself listening right. to really loud music. Like, you're carrying this. Well, you know what? The writer never actually gets that famous. The good thing about being the writer is you really are the lowest person on the totem pole or, or you're under the totem pole in terms of Hollywood. Um, so you go out there and you're on set, but there's no point to you being there. And no one asks you any questions. You're just hanging out. So you don't really get uh, that that Hollywood treatment necessarily. Um, and I'm very much a fly on the wall. And so when I'm there, it's fun and it's great and it's awesome, uh, but it doesn't ever get you know, crazy like that. But it has been a really wild 
ride for me. Um, just seeing nonfiction books turning into movies is, is a fairly rare thing. And uh, we've had two really great ones done so far. So. And you've sold the movie rights for this one? Well, I've sold the movie rights to all of them, actually. Mm -hmm. So I have five movies in development, but this is the one that's being made next. Um, so, yeah, I think this one will be really cool. I think uh, we've got a great director, from what I understand, the guy who's got that new uh, Mila Kunis, uh, uh, Justin Timberlake movie coming out next week. Uh, and he did the movie Easy A, uh, Will Gluck. So he's going to make this one. I think he's writing it and directing it, which will be awesome. And uh, I don't know who's going to star yet. Everyone asks me you know, <laughs> if Justin Timberlake will star in it. I think he's awesome. Uh, I did spend the day with Rob Pattinson, the Twilight guy. Yes. Um, yeah, my wife was very jealous, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, he's awesome. He's cool. I think he'd have to bulk up a little bit. But uh, <laughs> the character has to be someone who can both climb mountains and geek out you know, in NASA. So it's a character that has to be both smart and, you know, big and sexy. So maybe him, I think he'd be great. I think Shia LaBeouf would be cool. Um, who's, who knows? But, of course, as the author, I have zero casting control. Um, so whoever it is, it'll be awesome. Well, Ben, I'm so glad we caught you on your, oh. on your fast whirlwind trip. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate tonight. you all. And this is really the coolest gig I've done. This theater is awesome. So thank <laughs> you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. best-selling author Ben Mesrick speaking there about his latest book, Sex on the Moon. I spoke with Ben for the Writers on a New England Stage series, a partnership of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director of Writers on a New England Stage is Patricia Lynch. New Hampshire Public Radio's president is Betsy Gardella. The broadcast producer for this program is Shannon Dooling. Associate producer for this broadcast is Tom Holbrook of River Run Bookstore. Associate producer and director of strategic communications for the music hall is Margaret Talcott. And the live sound and recording engineer is Mike Marshand. The musical director and the band for the stage production is Bob Lord and Dreadnought. This broadcast was made possible by New Hampshire's Heinemann Publishing, transformative resources for today's teachers and tomorrow's leaders. To hear other authors from the series, visit nhpr.org and click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio.